3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. We are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. This is Priya, and good morning, Inez. Good morning, Priya. I said we for some reason. I guess we all together were on Thursday breakfast. You, me, I, together. We are one family on 3CR. That's amazing. I think, um, (laughs) Gab, when you're back, grab that. That's going to be our summer promo. Um... And also our promo for Radiothon and for what's the other thing that we do? Subscriber Drive. Yep. Um, anyway, uh, we have a packed show as usual for you today. Um, I know that for for folks of conscience, which I'd like to think almost all of our listeners are, I, I can't guarantee that people don't listen to us out of spite sometimes, um, but I can imagine it's been... Um, a pretty stressful time trying to sift through all of the information that is coming your way, um, trying to process the, you know, the ongoing genocide of Palestinians in Gaza and, you know, recognizing that there is uh, war and violence in so many places around the world that we're barely even hearing about. Um, Inez and I were talking about this morning, um, you know, the displacement of um, Afghans back to Pakistan, uh, sorry, by Pakistan back to Afghanistan, which is still reeling from the effects of thousands of people dying in an earthquake. Um, you know, we see displacement and war and violence being perpetrated against people in Sudan, um, in, in Congo. Yeah, in Congo. And, you know, people in Haiti are increasingly suffering under, um, I guess, like all out gang warfare, um, which is. I don't know. It's uh, first of all, colonialism is bad, and let's say we are an anti-colonial radio show, um, and um, Western meddling's got to stop. Absolutely. So often there's a power struggle, and it is the citizens and the people who are living there that bear the brunt of that. Yeah. yeah. Although, uh, if you're listening to ABC News, that's probably not what you're hearing. Uh, what I don't want to say anything libelous or slanderous, but let's just say mainstream media coverage has been abysmal to the point that even Piers Morgan is doing better on calling out um, the genocide of Palestinians than our own public broadcaster. But anyway, let's jump into what we have on for today's show. So to start off with, anti-Zionist Jewish author and transgender educator Nevo Zissin speaks with us about organizing amongst members of the Jewish community in so-called Australia in solidarity with Palestine against Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. So groups including Loud Jew Collective, Jews Against Fascism, Jews Against the Occupation and Zedek Collective, as well as Jewish comrades in Bantua Alice Springs have been engaged in solidarity actions across the country, putting their bodies on the line to demand an end to colonial violence against Palestinians and to fight alongside them for liberation. 
Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that interview. And then we have Mohammed Samra, who is a founder and CEO of Endeavor Youth Australia, which is an organization and a trusted brand in the community, you know, supporting thousands of young people to re-engage in their learning. Uh, he's also advocated on issues such as climate change, racial equality, and the importance of having decision makers that represent and reflect the community they're serving. He's also been a local candidate member, won multiple awards, and is currently the vice chair of Melbourne Sudanese Youth. So he is here to talk to us about the current crisis in Sudan, where um, there is over there has been over five million people that have been displaced, people that are fleeing violence, violence are also, uh, you know, fleeing to neighbouring countries, and the diasporic impacts in his communities. And after that, we're going to be joined by Emma Bacon, who's the founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities. And Emma's speaking with us about the campaign to win heatwave safe homes for renters in Australia and to tell us about tonight's panel discussion about heat stress in rental homes, which I'm going to be speaking at. And um, Sweltering Cities is a grassroots campaigning organization working with communities in some of Australia's hottest suburbs to fight for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. And then we'll be joined by the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Sue Warham. And the MAPW is a professional non-for-profit organization that works to promote uh, disarmament. The Medical Association for the Prevention of War um, also has talks about the environmental, um, sorry, aims to reduce the psych physical, psychological impact, as well as the environmental effects of war throughout the world. And Dr. Zhu has graciously come on to Thursday Breakfast to share the MAPW perspective on Gaza. Yeah, so um, a lot to a lot to cover today. Um, but stay tuned. Uh, these are some important discussions, and we hope to continue them over the coming weeks and months. Um, you know, we need to make sure that we're amplifying these stories in whatever platform we have. Um, but for now, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, Please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. These are the new headlines for Thursday the 2nd of November. In Gaza, Jabalaya refugee camp, the largest camp in Gaza, has been struck again. One day after an Israeli air attack killed more than 50 people, injured hundreds and sparked widespread condemnation around the world. Reports yesterday indicate a deal on the Rafah crossing to Egypt has been brokered to allow some critically injured people out of Gaza. The crossing is open for the first time since Israel began its genocidal war or, you know, over 75 years, but early in October as well. Earlier this week, communications and internet services were completely cut off in Gaza, with the international community of the Red Cross saying the communication blackout will disrupt the work of First Nation responders and make it harder for Palestinians to seek safety. 34 journalists and media workers have been killed since the current Israeli attacks on Gaza began this month, with most of them killed by Israeli airstrikes. Closer to home... 
Palestinian advocates are calling on the federal government to stop arming Israel. The Labour government approved 322 defence exports to Israel over the past six years, including with Albert Systems, an Israeli-owned private entity that tests weapons in occupied Palestinian territories and Gaza. Students and staff at RMIT University are protesting RMIT's joint partnership with Albert Systems and the Victorian government and the whistleblowers, activists and community alliance group are organising ongoing protests outside the offices of Albert in Port Melbourne. Also in headlines, with a warning that this headline contains details that may cause distress, especially for First Nations listeners, and a reminder that for First Nations listeners, if you do want to speak to somebody about any of the things mentioned in this headline, you can call 13YARN, that's 139276. This week, a coronial inquest into the deaths of four Aboriginal women at the hands of their partners has resumed in the Northern Territory. The inquiry began in June in Mpantua Alice Springs and aims to understand where government systems failed and where they can be improved. It has laid bare shocking and horrifying statistics around domestic violence in the Northern Territory, where First Nations women are eight times more likely to be assaulted than anywhere else in the country. In other news, Victoria's Children's Commissioner has revealed a child held in an adult prison was placed in a spit hood while spending months confined to his cell for up to 23 hours a day. In February, the child bravely contacted the commission to report that prison officers had used the spit hood on him that day, and the commission launched an inquiry. The child was kept in isolation for 24 weeks out of eight months, and has had water turned off in his cell, leaving him unable to wash his hands or use facilities. The case has reiterated calls for Victoria to ban the detention of children in adult prisons and prompted repeated advice to the Victorian government that spit hoods should not be used on children. And finally, in headlines, Legalise Cannabis Victoria have this week unveiled a bill to legalise the personal consumption of cannabis in Victoria, which would allow adults to grow up to six plants at home and possess up to 50 grams of cannabis. The bill will also allow sharing between adults, which is expected to massively reduce illicit drug trafficking and by organised crime. Uh, Legalised Cannabis Victoria says people in the state are still being jailed simply for possessing cannabis with, um, with massive enforcement costs, costing taxpayers $1.7 billion on cannabis-related law enforcement over one year alone. Now, these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of November. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Now, just one more thing for people um, who may be interested in finding more about the campaign to ban spit hoods in Australia. I encourage people to head to the Ban Spit Hoods Coalition. Um, Spokesperson Latoya Araha Rule has been doing incredible work after the death in custody of her brother, uh, Wayne Fellow Morrison. So uh, you can find more information about the work they do and support them by heading to banspithoods.com. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, 
occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. One percent of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by anti-Zionist Jewish author and transgender educator Nevo Zizin, who's speaking with us about organizing among members of the Jewish community in so-called Australia in solidarity with Palestine against Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. Groups including Loud Jew Collective, Jews Against Fascism, Jews Against the Occupation, and Zeta Collective, as well as Jewish comrades in Ubuntu Alice Springs, have been engaged in solidarity actions across the country, putting their bodies on the line to demand an end to the colonial violence against Palestinians and to fight alongside them for liberation. And this includes an action that happened yesterday to occupy uh, Richard Marles, the Deputy Prime Minister's office in um, Jalang. And so... Welcome, Nevo. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it is, it's so important to be having these conversations um, on air um, to cover, you know, the massive pushback within the Jewish community against Zionism and, um, you know, the colonial occupation of Palestinian, Palestinian territory and um, the destruction of Palestinian lives. So I, I'm really grateful to you for making the time. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so important, and and there is such a project to silence anti-Zionist and to silence anti-Zionist Jews. Yeah, and I mean, I guess on that, I was wondering if you could tell us about, um, you know, tell us about this this project and, um, you know, why you and an increasing number of Jewish people around the world, I mean, this resistance has been happening before this, the state of Israel, resistance by Jewish people against Zionism. Um, but why so many have been emphasizing that con- the conflation of Judaism with Zionism is, you know, dangerous and, and fundamentally incorrect? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I really believe that that our grief and our trauma from the Holocaust has been weaponized as justification to then commit atrocities against another group of people. And, you know, there's not there's not a lot of time between the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel. You know, I really 
I really believe that imperial powers and, and the US had vested interests in creating uh, a so-called democratic state in the Middle East, which we know that it's not, uh, and put so much money and power behind that investment, all on the backs of Jewish trauma. You know, and so for so many Jewish people, there is this belief that the only way that we will be safe is if we have Israel, that Israel is the only place that can keep us safe. But of course, what we've seen over the last 75 years is that that is not a country of safety and that is not a, an, an existence of safety. You know, to create safety off the backs of displacement, off the backs of genocide, off the back backs of mass murder, you know, like that's not that's not a way to attain safety. And so for many of us within the community, we say not in our names. You know, we've been taught from a young age what the what the Holocaust looked like, how people stood idly by, how could they have possibly done that? And for me, my Holocaust education manifests in standing up against these atrocities now because I recognise what's going on, because I can see it, because I grew up with these same images, these same photos and, and I will not have it done in my name. And this conflation between Zionism and, and Judaism is so problematic because it means that as soon as you criticize this imperial colonial project, you are deemed no longer a Jew or you're deemed anti-Semitic. You know, even within my own community, I've been called a self-hating Jew uh, or other more harmful terms. Mm. And it's like, actually, standing up against this is one of the most fundamentally Jewish things about me. You know, I love being Jewish. This is part of my Jewish values. I will not stand idly by to have my trauma and my grief weaponized. Yeah, I mean, I think you've put it really, really beautifully there. And um, I think there... I, I would really like to to hear you speak to some of those fundamental Jewish values that underpin the solidarity that you're expressing, because I know that this has been put out, you know, in a joint statement by um, Jewish organizations across so-called Australia that was issued last week. But um, yeah, could you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of a, like one big Jewish value is tikkun haolam, you know, healing the world. And another is tikkun hanefesh, healing the soul, you know, and those are very much things that I think about a lot in a lot of the social justice I do. You know, I've been on so many panels where people have asked me, what part of your advocacy for trans people comes from being Jewish? Or like, how much does your Judaism or your transness inform your writing? And it's like, there is no left arm that is Jewish and right arm that is trans. You know, (laughs) everything I do is informed by everything that I am. It's not separate from, it is core to. So, you know, I also really value argument and dissent. I mean, that's a really huge part of our culture. Uh, It has been since the dawn of Judaism. Like, we argue, we debate things. It's encouraged to have many opinions. And yet what I can see in this time is such a shutting down of any dissenting voices when it comes to not just criticizing Israel, but actually being vehemently against the establishment of the state. And that's because what we can see happening over and over again is that white supremacy is alive and well, and it's very hard to convince people that colonialism is bad when they also don't think it's bad on this continent. Mm, That is a very, very good point. And I think, um, you know, you, you drawing attention to that is a really crucial part of, you know, for all people that are standing in solidarity with with Palestine right now to think about 
the international complicities um, and the interconnections both between uh, our personal complicities on stolen land and also our government's complicities in encouraging and supporting these absolute atrocities. And so I was hoping that you could speak uh, to yesterday's action at uh, Richard Marl's office and the power of, you know, leaning into your faith there to fight colonial violence. So how did that go down? Yeah, look, it's it's quite amazing what what I've been able to witness just in this time, which is the coming together of and building of an anti-Zionist Jewish community and and our allies, um, which is something that I haven't really experienced so much in my life. And I think that that's what's happening for a lot of Jewish organizers in this space at the moment is they're kind of looking around like, oh, my God, I have a community because for so many we've been excommunicated from our communities and for some for generations. You know, mm. their grandparents were the ones who took the stand and then they were just sort of slowly iced out. <laughs> um, and so I think there's something really powerful in being able to stand together true to our faith and being able to bring Yiddish songs into the space as well. You know, Yiddish is a language of resistance and resistance against assimilation. And so to be able to bring that into the space, to be present with that and to recognize this solidarity of movements, I think is so important, you know, to, to acknowledge that our liberation cannot come at the cost of someone else's, that that's not freedom, that that's not liberation. And also recognizing that, you know, for many of us, we are, I guess, far enough away from some of our intergenerational trauma that we've been able to invest in our healing so that we do not feel so threatened by this idea of Palestinian freedom, that it's not going to come at the cost of our own freedom, but will actually be the thing that will free all of us. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, and I think it is kind of, it's kind of been wonderful to, to attend some of these rallies, um, you know, for Palestine and to see people at the rallies that I see um, at rallies against fascism, rallies against anti-Semitism, pro-refugee rallies, um, rallies for Aboriginal sovereignty, and just to see the sort of coalition building that occurs when people make these connections and really, um, you know, really live and leave their understanding of these connections in an embodied way that allows people to kind of show up across all of these intersections and recognize um, that, you know, structural oppression, colonial violence manifests in so many different ways. Um, I guess, uh, could you also tell us a bit about, uh, there's going to be a vigil at Parliament Gardens tonight, and a bit about uh, the intention uh, for that space? Yeah, I just wanted to speak quickly to what you were, you were talking about just before. You know, I think that that's that's where our strength lies. Like, for as long as we are siloing these issues into <laughs> diversity and inclusion categories of mm. disability and race and gender and whatever, you know, we lose so much of our power. We lose so much of our power if we don't recognize how interconnected these struggles are. And that's not just intersectionality in the sense of identity politics, but it's also the fundamental mechanisms of oppression. How do they reproduce over and over again? And when we can start to identify what makes them similar, we realize that we have so many more people that we can fight this with, you know? They might have money and power and vested interests, but we have people power and we have community and we have genuinely, I, I believe, sustainable models of care that we can find with one another that helps to resist all of the oppressive forces that we exist in. I mean, we've, we've been doing it our whole lives. Like, marginalised people have been imagining alternative futures our entire lives where basically speculative fiction writers every day, you know, and so I think that's where so much power lies. And I've gotten so much criticism from people like, you know, so much transphobia 
Um, and so much Islamophobia of, you know, as a trans person, why would you stand for this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like my belief in people's rights and freedom is not conditional. It's not conditional on how, on how I might be treated hypothetically. You know, I don't just want people's liberation if they use my correct pronouns. <laughs> I want everyone's liberation. Yeah, and, you know, the uh, the Israeli military may have... Uh vegan leather boots but those boots are still on palestinians next so correct um but yeah so there's you know there's going to be upcoming actions there's going to be this visual tonight and and yeah can you tell us about about that and and you know who who's invited yeah look i can't speak to the action tonight because i'm not one of the organizers i haven't been part of the process um, which is kind of a beautiful thing, right, to see more of these actions take place that, that you know, we're not all involved with. It's mm. great. Um, but my understanding is that it is for uh, Jewish people and it is for anyone else. You know, it, it's Jewish-led, um, but it's for anyone else. My, my understanding as well, and, and, you know, I can't speak to this as any sort of official statement, but um, is that it might not be framed as a vigil anymore mm-hmm. um, with the recognition that, you know, for many Palestinian people not having the opportunity to even be able to grieve right now with everything that's happening, um, that Jewish people should not be taking up that space to be Mm. grieving as well. But it is an act of solidarity with Palestinians and to try and build more more community between us because this is this is the power is the more that you separate us, the more we don't recognize what we have in common. And as I have built more meaningful relationships with Palestinians, with Arabs, with Muslims, I can see like how much we actually share, how similar our lives are and our cultures are and how much our struggles are united. Yeah, and I, I think um, it's it's also just been um, a real beautiful lesson for me in real time to see how, um, you know, how Jewish friends have really rallied in their faith to stand with Palestinian people and has been, um, you know, exemplary for, for folks like myself who are um, settlers on stolen land um, but may not have those different kinds of connections. Is I think we're all learning from each other and learning in real time about how to best show up in solidarity, how to um, be guided by Palestinian activists both here and people that are in occupied Palestine at the moment. Um, to really do what we can to um, appropriately and sensitively take up space and to, to you know, to hold the line. Um, so, Nevo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, just to um, wrap up, is there anything, any messages you wanted to share with any uh, members of the Jewish community that might be listening at the moment? Yeah, you know, I want to say that I know how acutely the grief and the trauma is being felt right now. You know, I know the ways that we have been taught to see the Palestinian flag or to see or to hear the phrase from the river to the sea. I know what that has been uh, manipulated into by our trauma. Um, And I want to say that there are so many more people standing alongside us as Jewish people than we are made to believe, that we have so many more comrades and so much more solidarity than we have been taught uh, to believe. And, you know, that that regardless of all of that, there is just no justification, no excuse, nothing that could allow for such a horrific genocide to occur. And, you know, this question of 
if you've ever wondered what you would have done if you were around during South African apartheid or the Holocaust or the slave trade in America, you know, this is the, this is the time to ask that question, what would I have done? What are you doing now? That's the answer, you know? That is the answer, and that our freedom cannot come at the cost of someone else's, and also that is not freedom. You know, we will never be free until all of us are free, and that needs to be a practice every day. Thank you so much. That's a beautiful way to to wrap things up. I really, again, appreciate you making the time this morning. Absolutely. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that was anti-Zionist Jewish author and transgender educator Nevo Zisin, who spoke with us about organizing amongst members of the Jewish community in so-called Australia in solidarity with Palestine against Israel's genocidal war on Gaza. Groups including Loud Jew Collective, Jews Against Fascism, Jews Against the Occupation, and Sede Collective, as well as Jewish comrades in Ubuntu Alice Springs, have been engaged in solidarity actions across the country, putting their bodies on the line to demand an end to colonial violence against Palestinians and to fight alongside them for liberation. And listeners, whether Jewish or not, are invited to join Jews Against Fascism and Loud Jew Collective for a gathering tonight at Parliament Gardens from 6 p.m., calling again for an end to the genocide of Palestinians and an immediate ceasefire. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckley is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And now we'll be joined by Mohammed Samra, who is the founder and CEO of Endeavour Youth Australia, building the organisation to become a trusted brand in the community, supporting thousands of young people to re-engage with learning. He's also advocated on issues such as climate change, racial equality, and the importance of having decision makers that represent and reflect the people they're serving, including being a local council candidate, as well as multiple humanitarian awards and human rights awards. He is here to talk to us about the current crisis in Sudan, where over 5 million people have been internally displaced um, and the diasporic impacts in his communities. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Mohammed. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. No, we really, really, really appreciate your time and to come on the show. I know it's clearly not been an easy time in the world right now. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, that's all right. Uh, yeah, and you can correct me if I'm, you know, incorrect about any of this at all at any point. But from my understanding, you know, Sudan is ex- currently experiencing one of the largest internal displacements with over 5 million people displaced by a civil war in Sudan, which is facing a huge, rapidly mounting humanitarian emergency. Now, obviously, I know that the history will date back long, you know, towards colonization, um, but it's also directly impacted by the last 50 years of, you know, successive military dictatorship, international interference, and now two rival military factions in a power struggle. And it's the Sudanese people that are bearing the brunt of that and are experiencing one of the world's most devastating humanitarian crises. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it is actually like in right now for the people in Sudan? Mm. The situation in Sudan, especially the humanitarian situation, is very dire. Um, as you mentioned, there's more than 5.79 million people displaced and 1.1 seeking refuge in neighboring countries. So far, 24 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance, which has increased about 10 million um, since the beginning of the war. Uh, Because before the war, Sudan was already experiencing a lot of struggles. Um, Now there's around 7 million people who are specifically facing hunger, and the healthcare system is struggling to cope with disease outbreaks, um, including um, pleura. Um, the conflict has also left 19 million children out of school and livelihoods have been decimated. Um, I guess like in, in this conflict, the term civil war um, has been commonly used to describe the situation. But I guess it's essential to recognize the broader context and the impact um, on the Sudanese population. Yeah. Uh, I guess like this has been, for the past couple of years, Sudan has been going through a terminal time. Um, there's been a lot of, I guess, situations where we've, I guess, been in conflict, um, um, in particular with the government. Um, I guess, yeah, so I, speaking to family back home, it's just been very, very difficult to, um, very difficult to find, um, to find any form of employment. There's a lot of people in Sudan that rely on family that live um, either in the UAE mm-hmm. or overseas to provide for their livelihoods. And if you don't have that, then life becomes tremendously harder. And, yeah. and, and yeah, the situation there is very, 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 very dire, especially in Harpo. Yeah, in uh, yeah, I was going to touch on that next. Is that I know, you know, this current um, you know civil war and conflict, not conflict, but. Um, ongoing you know crisis situation that's you know colonization international interference has left sudan's capital Khartoum in ruin there's been destructions of buildings electricity is limited food is in drastically short supply hospitals are on the brink of collapse there's been explosions at the airport it's not dissimilar to what we're seeing coming out of gaza and the west bank in palestine 
And similar, there's another focus on Darfur, which is a region which has been racked by over 20 decades of genocidal violence, where aid camps have been burnt, people are fleeing desperately from na- from the violence to neighbouring countries. This is a matter of complete and utter urgency. Why do you think it's not getting such limited media coverage? That's a very good question. is, And I, I guess it's due to the fact that media coverage was tied to foreign nationals being in Sudan. Because um, I guess news love story, the media love a story, um, and the world's eyes was in Sudan because there were so many um, foreign nationals in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as the foreign nationals um, packed up and left, you started to see the media attention drastically reduced. Um, and I guess in Darfur specifically, the experts were, were warning that Darfur is going to get the brunt of the conflict. Um, and it's especially hard on, I guess, the country's westernmost region, which had already experienced several periods of armed conflict over the past two decades. And there's been some... some um, some genocide in the past in that area. Um, some of Darfur's largest cities have been severely damaged and all suffered ethnic cleansing campaigns um, since the conflict broke out in April. And and, and it was something that um, the community was very aware um, would be a consequence of the war. Um, and according to the UNHCR's newly um, released protection brief, mm-hmm. nearly 4,000 civilians have been killed in Darfur, um, with a further 8,000 being injured. And I guess the issue in Darfur is the uh, the ethnic cleansing that's occurring. Um, like, schools are closed, children don't go to school. Um, and I guess, like, those who have left Darfur have spoken about and are battling acute psychological distress um, because of the um, because of the war and because of the the years long conflict that's been happening in that specific region. Um, but I definitely see um, why why media um, why media attention has dropped in Sudan because these conflicts was happening for um, for the past like couple of years and it seems to me that there was more concern about foreign nationals um, than there was about Sudan itself. Yeah, I think definitely touching on the point of limited media coverage but also going back to international interference because like looking at what's happening in Sudan and what has been happening in Sudan and in neighbouring countries, there are places like the US and Israel, especially, that have also fueled this war. Israel has also supplied anti-riot equipment, dangerous weapons, surveillance drones, and so much more. And I know that you've talked a little bit about the limited media coverage um, and the international community, but I know there's also a role that like stigma and discrimination um, that plays into and colonization that plays into like the ethnic cleansing in Darfur and in the genocidal violence. So I'm wondering if you have like a little bit to, to say on that. Um, 
Yeah, definitely. So in the case of of um, of Israel supplying um, the government with um, what you just said, um, so I guess the past couple of years Israel has been trying to normalize ties um, with with Sudan and other countries. So that is usually done um, by by giving spyware, by giving um, a lot of the technology that Israel uses to um, to I guess control the movement of of, of Palestinians within Israel, um, and that technology is then I guess like is sought out by um, governments and 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 dictators that want to do the same. I guess when it comes to Sudan, the situation has been is that no no mediator has managed to um, to come because many of the potential medias are either supporting the Sudanese government or the R- RSF. Mm-hmm. And I guess a lot of personal interests are coming into this. Um, and I guess the, the people of Sudan have sadly been forgotten in the process. Um, but definitely um, we've, we've seen a lot of discrimination and a lot of racism in terms of addressing the humanitarian situation in Sudan. I myself, when I was advocating for the past few months, um, even on social media, there was, there, there was a lot of comments. There was a lot of, um, I guess, like, there, there, there was a lot of racist comments about about Sudan. Um, and, and, yeah, and, 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 and you've seen that play out with how the media, the media, um, has has gone about um, highlighting yeah. the, the issues there. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete disgrace, and knowing that there's there's so many interconnected um, liberation and solidarity fights, but also that it's international interference and it's also exploitation of natural resources. And it, yeah, I think the situation is is devastating. And I think for our last question, I can imagine that there is you know, a sense of collective grief and rage and hurt and solidarity in the Sudanese community here in so-called Australia. And I think so often it is young people who are the ones that are asking the important questions, like, I feel so much, where do I direct this? And as the vice chair of Melbourne Sudanese Youth, what sentiments are you kind of hearing from young people? What impact is it having on them? Um, And also, if we want to know more about Sudan, what can we do? Yeah, I know a lot of young people, a lot of Sudanese families here in Australia that know someone who's passed away in Sudan. Um, and I guess um, engaging with with humanitarian organisations working in Sudan um, through donations, um, I guess, can make a huge difference because Sudan is going through a large humanitarian crisis and we should donate when we can. Um, and I guess what I've seen over the past couple of months is guys are galvanized together around the world. It was it was young people in particular that gathered straight away after the conflict that were supporting families evacuate Khartoum, that were creating um, that was creating huge awareness on social media, that was pressuring their governments to 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 support to provide aid. Um, 
So I'm definitely proud about how my community um, has responded to this crisis, especially the diaspora around the world, how they've responded. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely made a huge difference in highlighting the issues and the concerns of the Sudanese people. So for anyone else that's wanting to know more, mm-hmm. I would say to always um, go to trusted sources. There's a lot of activists that are currently working to highlight a lot of the issues in Sudan. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. And it's been really insightful to kind of hear um, what's happening in Sudan, what's happening in the diaspora, and also how it's also connected to Palestine and the liberation for for all. And knowing that, yeah, go to trusted sources. We'll try to, you know, if you can send us maybe some um, places that you know that we can get more information. We'd love to put it in our show notes. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again, Mohammed, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having No worries at all. Thank you. Uh, bye. Bye. That was Mohammed Samra, uh, sorry, who is the founder and CEO of Endeavor Youth Australia, um, an organization that is a trusted brand in the community, helping thousands of young people re-engage in learning. Um, he has also the vice Chair of Melbourne Sudanese Youth. He's a state finalist for the 2023 Young Australian of the Year Award. Um, many awards, also a formal local council candidate. And he spoke to us today about the current crisis in Sudan, where over 5 million people have been displaced um, due to a power struggle between military fractions and the impacts of diaspora and communities. Have fun on Melbourne Cup Day, but without the cruelty by saying nup to the cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November for Fashions on the Field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets. Help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Up to the Cup is a 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Co-Power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Co-Power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Co-Power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.47 in the morning. And we are now joined by Emma Bacon, who is founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities. And we are going to be discussing the campaign to win heatwave-safe homes for renters in Australia and talk about tonight's panel discussion about heat stress in rental homes. And I'm going to be speaking on that panel as well. And Sweltering Cities is a grassroots campaigning organization working with communities in some of Australia's hottest suburbs to fight for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate it. Um, And uh, thanks for having me on your panel tonight. (laughs) (laughs) It's our pleasure. (laughs) Uh, But I thought maybe we could start this conversation off with some of the broader context um, for our conversation, but also for tonight's panel. So listeners are 
you know, probably all aware by now that in 2023, the world has entered an El Nino weather cycle after several years of La Nina, meaning that this year we're facing reduced rainfall and hotter temperatures, especially as we move into the summer months. So could you tell us a little bit a bit more about the kinds of environmental impacts we can expect in Australia and indeed some of the impacts we've already been seeing? Sure thing. So we know that El Nino cycles bring... Um, hotter, drier summers. Like last time we had one, we had drought and we also had some really you know, exceptionally hot temperatures. But the important thing right now is that this El Nino is happening at the background. Um, the backdrop is climate change. So we're seeing globally hotter temperatures. We're seeing um, incredible periods of extreme heat around the world. I don't know if people saw that in South America only a couple of months ago at the end of their winter, um, they were reaching almost 50 degrees in some areas. So and that's the sort of thing we can expect here is unprecedented heat. Mm. We are looking at whether it's going to be this summer, the summer after or one soon, the hottest summer of our lives. And so we really need to be saying the summers of our past, like they don't exist anymore. When we talk to people who live in Western Sydney or other parts of the country, they're impacted by, you know, disaster after disaster. They say summers just aren't the same. Every disaster, every summer is a disaster. There's floods, fires, storms, heat. And so when we're thinking about the coming summer, people should expect it to be hot, for the heat waves to be longer, and for, um, you know, us to be experiencing summer, um, you know, all the way into the first few months of next year. It's not going to be a short summer. It's going to be a long one. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is a really important context for, um, you know, conversations about the the personal physical impacts of heat stress. So I know Sweltering Cities works alongside Better Renting, which released its sweaty and stressed renter researchers report for summer 2022 to 23 in March this year. And that report, which is based on data collected by 77 renter researchers, reflected really alarming results about the frequency at which rental properties across Australia exceeded safe temperatures. So What are some of the most concerning features of heat stress and how does heat stress already impact differentially on marginalized communities? Yeah, I think the Better Renting report shows how dire it is um, for so many renters. Even that sample of 77 rental researchers demonstrated some, you know, dangerously hot temperatures that people are living through where even being inside your home for extended periods of time could lead to heat exhaustion um, and heat stress. And so when it comes to the you know the big impacts of heat, the physical impacts, on the top you've got things like dehydration, heat stroke, heat exhaustion um, that affect us. But also with heat, it exacerbates existing medical conditions. So, And it's much broader, I think, than people really understand. So if people are younger or old, like, you know, if you're... If got young kids um, or people who are over 55 or 60, you know, their bodies struggle to moderate temperature. But add on top of that, people with disabilities or chronic illnesses um, can sometimes have trouble in the heat as well. People on certain medications, people who are pregnant. um, There's a really broad range of people who are vulnerable to heat-related disease, and it is much more um, prevalent than I think many people understand. But you've also got the mental health impact. So, you know, we know that um, assaults, domestic violence, stress, mental health hospital presentations all go up in the heat. And so, you know, those sleepless nights, feeling hot within your home, living in a low energy efficiency home, worrying about whether you can afford to turn on the aircon, 
all of those contribute to the mental health impacts of heat. So when people are stressed over summer, it's not just you. You're not the only person experiencing this. This is a demonstrated really severe impact of um, heat. And we know that the people who are most affected are people in hot homes, people who don't have the financial resources to, you know, go and book into a hotel on a hot day and things like that to keep themselves cool. Um, this really, the heat wave vulnerability is created by structural inequality. Mm, yeah, I think that's a very important point. And I guess um, with these increasing temperatures and reduced rainfall already expected over the rest of the year and into 2024, it's pretty clear that campaigns to improve climate change mitigation strategies um, and adaptation strategies in our cities are gaining increasing urgency. And so I understand that Sweltering Cities made a submission to the Victorian Parliament's inquiry into the rental and housing affordability crisis uh, this year, and we're still awaiting the report from that. I believe hearings have just wrapped up. But could you take us through your key recommendations for state government-driven change? Yeah, definitely. So we made the submission. We also actually ended up appearing mm. um, at the inquiry, which was really good to be able to speak directly to MPs. And, you know, there are so many inquiries around the country at the moment. Um, we are writing a lot of submissions, and sometimes it feels like, oh, God, another, you know, letter to government to mm. tell them things that they maybe should already know. But on the other hand, like, our approach, I think, is pretty powerful. What we do is we take... Um, you know, we tell people, we tell submission like, you know, this is what Swathering Cities does. Here's the health impacts of extreme heat. So when they're weighing up, uh, do we follow recommendations? Do we, you know, do stronger or weak recommendations? We're putting the evidence in there that to not act is to put people's health at risk, which I think is really important. And we include personal stories of people who, you know, have been impacted. So in our um, Victorian submission, we talked about things like, you know, people who ask their landlord, I just want to put up better blinds. Like, this isn't about, you know, ripping down the walls to add insulation. It's not about putting in expensive aircon, things like that, which, you know, sometimes we're going to have to do to make homes safe. This is about installing blinds that actually, you know, block out the heat and the sun, and they said no. I think examples like that show MPs, show the, you know, people doing, you know, making the recommendations that the current, situation is just totally unreasonable for renters. So the four things that we've asked for is, um, and these, you know, requests come from consultation with a committee of renters who've helped us devise these asks to make sure that it's not just altering cities saying, oh, we should do this. It's like these are really practical things that we know activists want. And firstly, is putting cooling in the minimum standards. They already have heating. We need to put cooling in as well. One of the MPs at the inquiry actually said, oh, heating and cooling are already in. So it was good to be able to correct them and say, actually, cooling isn't, it really needs to be there. Mm -hmm. Secondly is increasing insulation standards. The Victorian government's already said they want to do that. We need them to do it faster. Third is making um, anything to do with keeping cool during summer an urgent repair. So whether that's the air con's broken, the screen door's not working, um, the fan's not working, anything like that that might affect your ability to keep cool needs to be fixed within 48 hours. And the final thing we wanted was to clear the VCAP backlog. So if landlords or real estate agents were a blocker and saying, oh, we don't need to follow the rules, we don't need to follow the rules, or if people had a dispute, then that could be dealt with in a timely manner, not six months later. But, you know, one of the maybe few or one of the things that we were pleased with with the recent housing package was the announcement that there would be funding to set up a body to clear the VCAP backlog. So that hasn't happened yet, but we're really concentrating on the other three demands at the moment. So 
cooling and minimum standards, insulation, and making anything that keeps you safe in the heat an urgent repair. Yeah, fantastic. And I mean, I understand that communities, uh, community researchers and some groups are already also engaging in some bottom-up strategies for climate change adaptation in the home. So I saw uh, that there's been a recently reported pilot of climate safe rooms spearheaded by Geelong Sustainability. So are there any kind of best practice strategies here or internationally that renters themselves can look to for guidance when it comes to short-term adaptation to heat stress while we wait for those longer-term solutions to be put in place by government? Yeah, so I think there are, you know, things that we can do that don't take much energy, but like, or don't take a lot of effort, but renters are blocked from doing it. Things like better blinds, draft proofing, mm. um, things like, you know, installing better fans, things like that. So those are really, I think, low hanging fruit, but we know that renters can't always do that, which is like, you know, absolutely unreasonable to say that again. If people are thinking about what they can do in their homes this summer, like I live in a really low energy efficiency home, like lots of other people in Victoria. Um, what we need to do is things like blocking drafts to grab some of those door snakes that sit on the bottom of doors to make sure that you don't have hot air coming in, close the blinds, um, you know, or even put up a blanket or something like that when the heat is hitting a window to make sure it's not coming into the house. And then in the afternoon, if there is a cool breeze, we know those really big cool changes. Like keep an eye on the weather report. When the cool change comes through, open up your house to make sure you know, that's really having as big an impact as possible. But the biggest advice we give people is about what you can do in the moment to be safe. So we've worked with expert researchers at University of Sydney at the Heat Health Research Institute on, you know, identifying what is the best advice we can give people. Evaporative cooling is something that is really effective. So what that means is sitting in front of a fan, wetting your skin, whether it's with a wet cloth or with a little spray bottle, something like that, and letting the fan hit you and evaporatively cool your body is really effective, putting your feet in cold water, making sure you're not doing physical activity in the middle of the day, and most importantly, staying hydrated. Drinking a glass of water every hour, even if you don't feel thirsty, like that's going to be really helpful. Don't let yourself get dehydrated. Don't let the people around you get dehydrated. That's one of the really big risk factors that makes it so much harder for your body to keep cool. Yeah, I mean, these are excellent tips, and I think... Um, you know, it's it's really unfortunate that we have to kind of take this on ourselves as renters um, to to come up with workaround strategies as government kind of drags its feet. Um, but maybe just to wrap up tonight's event, which I'm going to be speaking at as well, explores the urgent need to provide all renters with heatwave safe home environments. So can you just tell us a little bit about what's in store and where listeners can register and find out more? Yeah, of course. Um, and just one more thing on the last is um if you don't have a if you don't have a fan at home go and get one now don't wait till it's really hot and they've run out at kmart um or anywhere else like go and get one right now if you don't have one at home that's another hot tip um but in terms of time spent we're really excited we've got lots of registrations it's going to be at 6 p.m at trades hall in carlton so if you turn up there'll be signs directing you to the right room we're collaborating with rahu the the renters and housing union to also bring together you know, more renters come in, they're going to be speaking on the platform. We've got people who live in, you know, um, who are experiencing, like, what it's like to be a renter and live in a hot home. Um, you know, on the platform, we're talking from the perspective of public and private housing. And we've also got a doctor who's from Doctors for the Environment to say, this is what's happening. And, you know, so often with heat, people feel it is an individual problem. 
you know, there in a hot home. And I've, I've felt this. I've lived in really hot rental places and I'm like lying there with a, you know, wet towel across me at night being like, what am I doing? And, you know, I felt like that was my problem. And I think lots of renters feel like that. But actually these are big problems that are, you know, impacting lots of people at once. And it's not just about comfort. There's serious medical implications to this. Mm. So we're going to have a doctor to talk about, you know, here's what the medical implications are. You know, this is why we need to act. Um, renters deserve safe homes. So that's 6 p.m. tonight in Carlton um, in Trades Hall. And it's going to be really fantastic. We're going to be there for about an hour and a half. Um, so people should come by on the way home or come over. We're also going to be streaming it on um, online. But if people want more information, I've just posted it onto our Instagram stories. So you can look up Sweltering Cities on Instagram and have a look at our stories. And we've got a registration link just there. And there's some more information. Wonderful. Well, looking forward to seeing you tonight, Emma, and thank you so much for making the time this morning. Oh, my pleasure. And that was Emma Bacon, who's the founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities. And Emma joined us to discuss the campaign to win heatwave safe homes for renters in Australia and to tell us about tonight's panel discussion about heat stress in rental homes, which I'm going to be speaking on. And Sweltering Cities is a grassroots campaigning organization working with communities in some of Australia's hottest suburbs to fight for more livable, equitable and sustainable cities. And you can find out more about tonight's panel event, as Emma said, which will be held at Trades Hall tonight from 6 to 7.30 p.m. by looking up Sweltering Cities on Instagram, on Facebook, or you can find their website at swelteringcities.org. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. This morning, we are joined by the president of the MAPW, which is the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Sue Warham. The MAPW is a professional non-for-profit organization that works to promote peace and disarmament. And the MAPW aims to reduce the physical and psychological impact, as well as the environmental effects of war and occupation throughout the world. And Dr. Sue has graciously come to talk to us on uh, Thursday breakfast this morning. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Sue. Thanks very much, Inez. No, thank you so much for yeah taking the time out of today. Um, I think you know you can provide a really important perspective on what's happening in Gaza right now. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about like the multiple kind of short-term and long-term physical and psychological impacts um, 
of occupy of living in occupied Gaza and what the response has been from the international medical and aid community to the flattening of cities and the murder of almost you know 9,000 10,000 Palestinians including 3,400 of which have been children yes well it's a pretty um, shocking I've, I've got an echo here I'm afraid on the line um, oh yes, that's okay. So sometimes um, we you have a little echo at the start, and then it will typically okay. uh, disappear. So we, it's all good on our end, though. Okay, it's just a bit disconcerting at this end, but I'll proceed. Um, and as it, it's a huge question, what are the medical impacts of um, of what's going on in Gaza at the moment? And one can only imagine how absolutely terrifying it is for the people living there, um, especially, not only, of course, but especially the children to be going through the constant bombardment that's going on at the moment and literally flattening, in the words of the UN Relief and Work Works Agency, literally flattening neighbourhoods, people getting trapped under buildings, um, medical, medical supplies being cut off and just about... Uh, everything that society needs to operate being cut off, in addition to, um, as you mentioned, many, many, many thousands of deaths and the number of deaths we can multiply several times to come up with an estimate of the number of those injured. So what's happening is just almost impossibly... Um, Hard to hard to contemplate um, the multiple types of types of injuries, head injuries, chest injuries, um, broken bones, all the rest, and multiple injuries in the one person, um, and the hospitals being absolutely overwhelmed. Um, some of the hospitals and other healthcare facilities being destroyed. People not being able to get medical help for serious life-threatening injuries. Um, even running out of anaesthetic, pain relief, that sort of thing. It's just um, unconscionable and unprecedented what we hear from people who who work professionally in uh, disaster zones and war zones is that this is unprecedented. They've never come across anything um, as catastrophic on the same level as what they're seeing in Gaza at the moment. The long-term consequences, um, I'm thinking particularly of the psychological consequences long-term are going to be horrendous. The short-term psychological consequences, um, one can only imagine, will be horrendous. It's just a... Um, uh, an unspeakable situation which has got to got to stop there's got to be an end yeah i think you've touched on a really important point there that you know these are the ministry of health's death tolls but it does not account for the amount of people that are under rubble who are currently injured who have um not been able to yeah you know go forward with medical equipment or are um also who are you know, experiencing the effects of ongoing starvation and bombardment. And what's interesting, um, I think personally for me as a, like a therapist as well, is there is the concept of like post-traumatic stress disorder um, where that there is, <laughs> there is a point at which you will, you know, retain, return to a baseline and it will be post um but people in Gaza and people in occupied West Bank as well as occupied Gaza, they don't stop um, experiencing trauma. Um, there is no post <laughs> and that that psychological impact oh. is so, um, I think that shouldn't be negated because there there is no like safe baseline. There is nowhere safe in Gaza at the moment. And 
I know there's so much else that we can't see. There's dust, there's flies, there's feces because, you know, there's no toilets. There, um, you know, houses are being bombed, hospitals are being bombed. Um, can you describe maybe some of the impacts that are exacerbated by the lack of fuel and water and food and other medical essentials? You know, people are performing surgeries with no anesthetic, using their phone lights, um, and also under constant bombardment. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, in in any disaster zone, one of the things which is um, a huge worry once the immediate crisis is over and and once you've said the immediate crisis is absolutely not over in Gaza, it's still continuing. But one of the things which health professionals greatly fear is the outbreak of infectious disease because with the breakdown of sanitation, um, lack of adequate clean water, uh, fuel, etc., it's... um, it's pretty likely that there's going going to be uh, infectious disease outbreaks and these will take a further horrendous toll on the people and again disproportionately affecting young people, children who who suffer from infectious disease outbreaks um, disproportionately more than adults. So the list of problems just goes on and on. Um, the and, and it's really it's really hard to know where to begin with this. If one has any um, any sense of preventive medicine at all, then one's just we've got to say just stop stop this madness, stop this bombing of a civilian population who are trapped in Gaza, nowhere to go. Um, they're given the instruction, well, go go somewhere else. Uh, I mean, it's absurd, it's ludicrous, it's insulting to tell people who are trapped in a war zone, have uh, been trapped in, in Gaza for for a long time under under occupation. Uh, so to tell them just to go somewhere and get out, get out is um, irresponsible, is putting it mildly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think... There's so much that you have touched upon about the like the long term impacts, particularly on children. Um, and so often, you know, we had an interview earlier um, where they were talking about it's really important that we don't like silo these issues separately. Um, where Palestine is also a disability justice issue, and it is you know a, a settler colonial issue, but it's also a medical issue and a health issue. And we've also seen that there have been, you know, rallying of um, medical staff all across the world saying this is completely unacceptable. Um, but I know that, you know, recently with the UN General Assembly uh, resolution, or oh, the vote for a ceasefire, the government um, recently abstained on October 27th. Um, could you tell our listeners what the possible outcomes of this inaction could be for the people in Gaza and other, you know, um, occupied territories and countries in the region and what this tells us about the Australian government's procurements. Yes. And just before I answer that, um, you touched on another important issue, which is the fact that the people in Gaza um, already, even before the current bombardment started, already had a lower level of health care um, provided yeah. than uh, than the people of uh, people of Israel and elsewhere, so they were starting from a, a, a low base already. The um, UN General Assembly resolution last week it was a totally nonpartisan resolution. It was recognising the catastrophe in Gaza. It was um, recognising the hum- 
the the violations, the attacks on healthcare, etc., um, which are unacceptable uh, for all against all people, Israelis, Palestinians, and others that recognise those in a non-partisan fashion, and it called for the destruction to stop. It was a non-partisan resolution. The Australian government could not even vote in favour of that. The Australian government abstained. This was absolutely appalling. Um, we were in the company of a few dozen other nations. The overwhelming majority of the UN member states voted in favour of the resolution, um, but Australia and a number of others abstained. This is um, just sending such a bad, bad message to the Israeli government. And our, the Australian government, uh, Foreign Minister Wong, has said on occasion, oh, both sides need to obey the rule of law. But the Australian government has, to our knowledge, has not once criticised a single war crime that Israel has committed in this current war. Not not a single one, to our knowledge. Um, there's been um, outright um, explicit condemnation of what Hamas has done, and rightly so, but the government needs to follow up with explicit, outright, utter condemnation and rejection of Israel's bombardment of Gaza, and the government has not done that. By abstaining at this resolution last week, it's, one could almost see it as a bit of a, if not a green light, an amber light to the Israeli government. Well, you know, we, we're going to call out what Hamas does, but um, but we're not going to explicitly call out what Israel does. And this is just such a, a very, very bad thing for Australia to do. This will be this will be recorded in history as a time when Australia failed to stand up to outright war crimes being committed. And we failed because we, we're taking a partisan stance on this issue. We can't afford to take a partisan stance on this issue. We've got to apply the rule of law, which our government constantly talks about, the rule of law and the rule of law. Well, we've got to apply it in a partisan fashion. You don't apply the rule of law with one rule for one party and a different rule for another party. 100%. Um, I think, yeah, Priya wanted to just shout out something. Yeah, uh, Sue, I just wanted to, to jump in there and, and say as well, you know, when people that are in this country see what our government does uh, to, uh, I guess, you know, largely endorse what the Israeli government is doing, uh, you know, definitely not condemn it in in very strong terms at all. Um, I think it also raises a question about their commitment to the health and welfare of people in this country as well, if they think that this is an acceptable, uh, you know, if, if abstaining from this kind of resolution is acceptable, if um, supporting the state of, of, of Israel in its genocidal attacks on Palestinians are acceptable. So that's, I was kind of reflecting on that as well and the implications um, on the health and welfare of people here, especially Palestinian folks here um, who have family in Gaza and in the occupied territories. Yes, definitely. The Australian government is not representing the... Um the fears and the concerns of the people, of the many people uh, of Palestinian origin who who are living in Australia. So, what we would be, um, what we would be calling, what we have called, our organisation has called on the Australian government to do. Medical Association for Prevention of War has called on the Australian government to stop its political support for Israel until Israel's bombardment of Gaza ceases and until um, the war on Gaza ceases. Um, and to stop weapons exports to ex to Israel, um, 
we there's so much secrecy around weapons exports generally, but we know that they occur. They have occurred in recent years in not insignificant numbers. So we're calling on the Australian government to stop its political support for Israel and to stop the weapons exports. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. I think, yeah, you've touched on so many incredibly important points that um, I think it's important for even if, you know, you have healthcare workers in your um, life um, who maybe aren't, you know, on board or for what reason, um, you know, even explaining that, like, Israel is committing war crimes every single day. Um, they're also using banned white phosphorus, the where healthcare workers are seeing burns that they've never seen before. They're not able to, you know, execute surgery in, you know, sanitary powered conditions. Um yeah, reach out to people and say, like, imagine working in those conditions and there is so much work that is being done. Yeah, protest albeit systems and learn more about Medical Association for the Prevention of War and your efforts and really rally behind that because, um, we, you know, people may think, I don't know what, what to do, um, but we are stronger in all of our numbers and coming together and looking at building solidarity um, is the best thing that we can do. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Sue. Thanks very much, Inez. Could I just add a comment that I'd encourage encourage listeners also to reach out to their parliamentarians on this. You can find some materials on the Medical Association for Prevention of War website um, if you'd like those. But um, we encourage you to support. We're aware that um, a small number of AOP parliamentarians have spoken out. Some independents have spoken out. The Greens have been um, supportive of um, of calls for peace on this issue. Um, give a um, give a message of support to all those parliamentarians who have spoken out on this, and to those to the very very many who haven't. Um, urge them to speak out on this and ask them why not this um, these crimes have got to stop. Yep, amazing. Thank you so much, Sue. And we'll definitely put some of that in our show notes. Thank you, Ines. Thank you. And that was Dr. Sue Warham, who is the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And the MAPW is a professional um, non-for-profit organization that works to promote peace and disarmament. And the MAPW aims to reduce the psychological and physical impact, as well as the environmental effects of um, occupation and war throughout the world. And Dr. Sue has graciously um, yeah, come on the show to tell us about that. This is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. (laughs) I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. 
with the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza. It's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And now we will have a little tune um, by R3D and these are Palestinian artists and the song is called Ramadan. And that was Ramadan by R3D, uh, Shabjid, Dabur, Ramadan, and Al Nitur. And that is a Palestinian artist uh, coming together to make a song that's really wonderful. Amazing. Thank you, DJ Inez. And um, 
I guess we wanted as uh, Thursday breakfasters, we're not journalists, journalists, but we are, uh, you know, we bring you current affairs every Thursday morning. And um, we really wanted to highlight the just like gross injustice, violation of international humanitarian law, um, violation of, you know, media principles, um, which is the murder of journalists, the targeting of journalists in Gaza under Israeli bombardment um, during this genocide. And uh, we know that since the 7th of October 2023, I mean, this, look, this list comes from uh, today, um, you know, a couple of hours ago, but I, you know, who knows if it has grown since then. But since the 7th of October, 25 Palestinian journalists have been killed in Gaza. So I wanted to read out their names. Uh, I'm going to start with Saeed Al-Tawil, Doa Sharaf, Muhammad Al-Sali, Hisham Al-Nawaja, Salma Mukaimer, Jamal Al-Fakawi, Muhammad Balusha, Muhammad Abu Rizq, Rushdi Al-Saraj, Asad Shamlak, Salam Mema, Yasser Abonamus, Muhammad Jargun, Said Al Halabi, Hossam Mubarak, Abdul Hadi Habib, Ahmed Abdumadi, Ibrahim Lafi, Samih Nadi, Khalil Abu Athra, Isam Bar, Muhammad Abu Matar, Muhammad Labad, Ahmed Shahab, and Muhammad Abu Ali. Our hearts are with you and with your families and uh, especially want to underscore the grave injustice that has been uh, ABC News's complete um, lack of consideration of the life of Rushdi Al-Saraj, who was killed just after filing a report for ABC 730 as a freelance journalist. Um, so once again, uh, we have read out the names of 25 Palestinian journalists that we know of who have been killed in Gaza since the 7th of October 2023. Um, we express our rage and solidarity with the people of Palestine and with uh, Palestinian journalists who have been covering this, um, have been doing their absolute best in a time of complete atrocity. Also send solidarity to the family of Wael al-Dado, whose uh, family was targeted and has been murdered. Um, and he has continued to report. He is the Al Jazeera bureau chief in uh, in Gaza. And it, it is just an absolute grave injustice and atrocity. Yeah, absolutely. And also wanting to, you know, I guess highlight that these are not journalists in an, you know, reporting outside of like sitting in a computer <laughs> they are journalists that are pulling their own family their own friends out of the rubble and they continue to report it and it is our um, duty as well to bear witness to that they're, they're speaking in languages that are not their native languages so, so we can hear them like think about what that means to pull your friends out of the rubble take a video and then say this is what's happening that's it, there's no separation. This is their community, their families, their lives, their friends um, in a siege. So, yeah, the journalists are uh, goddamn heroes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it would be it would be ridiculous to, to say that, you know, people like myself who have been following this on social media haven't developed an attachment and a reliance on the incredible work of people like Mutaz Aziza, uh, like Plestia Alakad, like Bisan, who is not a journalist but a filmmaker, um, who 
you know, like these these folks are, you know, risking their lives after seeing the targeting of journalists to continue sharing this information with the world. So we send our solidarity to them as well. And also, um, yeah, God knows what will happen with like Instagram or uh, people are getting shadow banned and all these things are happening. But, you know, if you can take a recording, um, share, like save it, um, archive what you are seeing as well. Because um, we know with the Eye of Palestine, it got completely, you know, taken down and then got recently reestablished. So, yeah. yeah. So important to keep an eye on and fight for the digital rights and freedoms of people um, in Gaza that are reporting on Palestine at the moment. Now, we're coming up to the end of our show, so we'll do a very quick rundown. First up, we were joined by anti-Zionist Jewish author and transgender educator Nevo Zizin to speak about organizing amongst members of the Jewish community in so-called Australia in solidarity with Palestine. And then we heard from Mohammed Samra, who is from and CEO of the Endeavour Endeavor Youth Australia, as well as the Vice Chair of Melbourne Sudanese Youth, to talk about the current crisis in Sudan, where over 5 million people have been displaced and the dysphoric impacts on the community. And after that, we were joined by Emma Bacon, who is the founder and executive director of Sweltering Cities, to talk about the campaign to win heatwave safe homes for renters in Australia and to talk about tonight's panel discussion about heat stress in rental homes, which I will also be speaking on at 6 p.m. at Trades Hall. And then we were joined by the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, Dr. Sue Warham, on the psychological, physical impacts um, of occup- uh, on the people who are living in occupied Gaza, um, as well as what Australia can do about it as well. But that has been uh, Thursday Breakfast. Yeah, and uh, just finally reminding people there is going to be uh, a gathering tonight at Parliament Gardens from 6pm calling for an end to the genocide run by anti-Zionist Jewish activists. this Sunday at 12 p.m. outside the states of uh, outside State Library of Victoria, there's going to be another rally for Palestine, and uh, you can join uh, Palestinian solidarity activists on the steps of Parliament House every single day. Uh, you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast, and we'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.